the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with today's talk, uh, just want to remind you that if you are enjoying the show, uh, it'd be awesome if you if you feel so inclined to uh, throw me some some little bit of money at Patreon. You can find me at www.patreon.com forward slash muhh for Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour, of course. Uh, but we've got a uh, we've got a really exciting episode today. We've got two guests. Uh, we'll start us off with. Uh, Taylor Atkins, a repeat offender um, from the Hello. <laughs> from the Theory Talk podcast, and actually translated uh, the edition of Machinic Unconscious that we're going to be discussing today. We're going to be tackling the first three chapters, but also another repeat offender. We'll call him DC at four Q two four eight on Twitter. Um, joining joining us, his he has a blog, pseudo analysis, and is currently studying to become a full-fledged psychoanalyst so welcome back fellas thank you glad glad to be back man yeah it's good good to be here hell yeah uh so we are the are, are <laughs> we the are we the three super guatario brothers yes we, super yes. Guata, super guatario brothers three is the title <laughs> of the episode this is this is part one and uh we'll see how this goes but mm-hmm. my my first question or first comments i guess more so would be like one, my qu- first question is, how how can this m- reading this book make me a better poster? And and two, I'm definitely it's good to see uh, Chomsky getting dunked on, <laughs> even though like Watari was pretty restrained in in his criticism of Chomsky. Um, that's pretty funny. I think that's uh, counterintuitive since I am am an anarchist. You don't hear a lot of anarchists talk shit about. Chomsky, but I'll say fuck Chomsky. Interesting. You know, you know, it, 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 you know it, it reminds me of. I'll I'll talk about the second part. The second the second dunking on Chomsky is easier than than the the first question, which is which is going to be super fun to dive into. But I will just say it reminds me a little bit of an anti Oedipus, where it seems more of the criticism is going towards the Lacanians than towards Lacan. Yeah, uh, a lot of the, yeah. for example, they uh, they draw upon um, like Serge Leclerc and his. It seems like Guattari even gets some of this language of desiring machines from Leclerc, but it's all wrapped up in in this uh, notion of the uh objet petit and and it's it's all in this lacanian uh garb and so he uh but he dunks on leclerc and 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 several other lacanians um i know in a thousand plateaus 
it's it's much more direct towards Lacan. They've kind of that that frenemy uh, or that 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 whatever love was already lost by a thousand plateaus. Um, and I think that's it's similar in Machine and Conscious where he does kind of praise Chomsky for some of his initial ideas, his first ideas, specifically the abstract machine in terms of generative grammar. But mm-hmm. he but but he, he has a little bit of dunking on Chomsky, but he but he seems to and I'm not sure exactly the group that he's talking about, but he but he seems to blame the Chomskyans, uh, these the the followers, the students of Chomsky, those who sort of made him a household name. Uh, they he seems to be, uh, and some of those are he kind of lumps in like uh, some of Habermas's earliest work. Uh, he laughs at at that. Um, <laughs> You know, he laughs at uh, Brakel, Herbert Brakel, who I guess is a Chomsky. And some of the, the names I outlined in the glossary are, I assume, maybe what he means. But so it's kind of similar where he's he's a little bit restrained at the master, you know, Lacan slash Chomsky. And, and more of his wrath is going towards um, towards these students. But I think that's maybe a kind of way to have your cake and eat it too, right? To, <laughs> yeah. to, be, to be cheeky. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? I think you're right in drawing the parallel between the criticism of Lacan and Chomsky. Yeah. In Anti-Oedipus, they even say uh, Lacan is the first schizoanalyst. Maybe right. Maybe not right. in that exact way, but they say he's the one who primes psychoanalysis towards the weird, which yes. Mark Fisher talks about in his book, The Weird and the Eerie. Um, that's but, good. Uh, well, I feel like Watari's whole thing is uh, usually proper names are kind of like deterritorializing vectors. There's that thing in Anti-Oedipus. He says history is like science of proper name. Yep. De- deterritorializes because it brings in these new ideas into history. But uh, the second those unique ideas brought up by a proper name get like cemented and solidified and crystallized into this kind of overarching idea. Then he has, Guattari has a reaction to it. You know, yeah, the, the yeah, original I, thinker had a cool idea. And now everyone's kind of trying to nail down all the ideas and so that they don't have lines of flight. They don't do anything interesting anymore. I, I like that. that happening with, with Chomsky in this text. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's the same thing, uh, you know, in Anti-Oedipus, they, they talk about, you know, proper names should mobilize effects rather than exactly. concepts. So, yeah, and, the and so this is kind effect. of, mm-hmm, yes, exactly. So this is, this is kind of, uh, you know, I, I know that perhaps SoCal and Greek mall might be, might say this is just a metaphorization of, of science, but I do think that they, 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 they liken it to, um, to how science deploys proper names, um, and and that that should be the goal. And I think that that's you could see both Watery and Deleuze uh, in their own ways adding stuff in here because I think that Deleuze is very faithful to Nietzsche in the sense in which you know to to follow Nietzsche you have to lose him, right? So it's I think that's the sense of the proper name becoming. Uh, being dispersed and um, 
sort of animating effects rather than having to be, as you said, very eloquently, like being pinned down into a concept. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good segue back to uh, Coop's first question on like, how does this make me a better poster? Yeah. Yep. It makes me think of one of my favorite little aphorisms of Nietzsche is uh, I, I said something like, I respect only what someone writes in their own blood. So he, <laughs> Nietzsche like has that. this really kind of dark, grim, materialist look at uh, writing and language, which I don't think is far off from the idea of diagram, diagramming and asignifying, mm -hmm. uh, write with your own blood, this idea that you really have to enunciate from your body and you have to be in contact with what you really believe and what's true to your experience. And that's the only thing worth writing, or in this case, posting. <laughs> yes. I, I like that. And I think that for Coop, it would be, uh, you know, uh, write, write with your own cum, right? So, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Post with your own cum. <laughs> oh, post, post with your own we make cum. no uh, distinction between it's, it's like the metaphorical phallus, if you will. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pound of flesh, a pound of cum, right? Exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I like that. Uh, you know, it, it reminds me of Nietzsche himself talking about, um, the aphorism and, and the, the style of the aphorism, the, yes. the very, the aphorism form being sort of maximal signification, minimal, uh, minimal content or minimal like uh, output. So this, this kind of uh, this, this seeking the most intense linguistic form in order to density. Yes, that's right. This, this is the most intense, the most dense, and and sort of lobbing uh hand grenades right or yep. as he, he would he would call it he would call it uh shooting an arrow but that's mm -hmm. i think that that with posting it is more of like a uh, uh it is more like cluster bombs and um and then and then in the midst of all of this shrapnel perhaps uh every now and then one one gets lucky enough to to have a true target a true aim um but uh, i put all that in scare quotes right because because i think that that uh that some of the i mean what 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 i respect about what coop does is you can see that he's uh he's kind of throwing darts and seeing what sticks he's throwing come on the wall and you know, <laughs> seeing 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 what sticks and and not every of not not every one of his posts is is uh, is the highest in, in in the sense of an arrow, but it is, but it is a, but it is a throw. It's a rethrow, and so it's it's launching these particles, and um, and sometimes uh, more often than not, I would say, um, you know, Coop, Coop does a a really good job and provokes thinking, and I think that that's part of what I try to do in my own way uh, posting. Sometimes I ship posts or whatever but but a lot of times you know i'll it, it just kind of depends on my mood i you know i i try to make a like like preparing for for our talk you know i i shared some of our notes like the did the thread on the rhizome did the thread on existential consistency mm -hmm. and uh so uh, but i think that that's part of my own like scholarly hangups is like it, it's it's i still want to be a part of that uh chorus of scholarly voices and and so um you know anything to provoke thinking whatever form it may take uh i i find to be successful even if even if um 
at times you get uh, people uh, like like for example, I in the rhizome thread there were some people that had you know negative feedback and were like oh D and G are wankers. When you're working with patients, uh, less is more when you intervene. A patient may uh, provide you a whole paragraph and you might remain silent or you might ask a simple question or you might just have a statement. So I think those all kind of relate to this idea of the aphorism and of the tweet and of the post and that less is more and sometimes that's what you need to really charge, uh, well not charge, but connect with what matters, get back to material, uh, which I think is Guattari's whole project is how do we use language to actually get back in touch with these kind of deep, strange, materialist uh, occurrences? Yes, totally agree. To, to that as well, so I'm, I'm curious, is the, is the machinic unconscious, is that, a, is that a descriptive term or kind of framework, or is that a tactic? Or Yeah, Ooh, that's a... You know, I would say tactic, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's. I think it's. Um, it's a. It, I think the terminology has to be traced back to Antiedipus, right? It's insofar as for Deleuze and Guattari, uh, desiring machines, i.e., desire, really shows the sort of confluence of the unconscious, which is both libidinal and economical at the same time, right, uh, that I think machine unconscious is a sort of a, 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 a term of art for uh, encapsulating all of that previous work, all of that previous theorization into what they call desire as sort of, you know, infrastructural. And, and so I think machine unconscious is, is meant to, to bind together that aspect of uh, economic production and desiring production as being one and the same just on different uh, just 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 from different dimensions right does that make sense yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah so I so I do think it's tactical but it also has the benefit of sort of compacting uh, descriptively what was already previously theorized and so much of, of anti-Oedipus is assumed in the <laughs> conscious that it's easy to, mm -hmm. it's, it's easy for Guattari to say, oh, well, this is meant as a handbook for A Thousand Plateaus, but as we know, A Thousand Plateaus is, is, is really volume two of a, of, a, of a larger work. Yeah, and I think it's helpful to think of machinic, like the difference between a machine, what a machine does, and then what a, like, just a representation is. Right. I always read the idea of machinic as being productive. This, uh, the unconscious is in these impersonal forces that get territorialized in a body, which is straight right. from Freud's 1920 Beyond the Pleasure Principle, yes. where he talks about how inanimate matter ends up accidentally taking on a charge and then it encases this charge and then develops a crust and then that turns into an organism through feedback. Um, and then it wants to maintain its equilibrium, blah, blah, blah. But uh, so the machinic idea is that the unconscious is just this kind of preconceptual base 
level of material that just churns away kind of in this random variation uh, form and just produces all these combinations uh, as opposed to kind of what happens to Freud later in his career where the unconscious turns into what they call basically just a personal theater. Like a theater. Yep. Yeah. Oh, you know, I was mad at mom and dad and they didn't allow me to be mad. So my anger towards them just went into the unconscious and now, you know, I'm resentful and their whole Guattari's whole thing is yes, that's one level of the unconscious, but beneath that importantly is the productive part that isn't uh, saddled with all these kind of neurotic conflicts. Yeah. Uh, it's really a project in getting back to the pre adipal Well, they wouldn't, they call it the anatypal, but in the pre-verbal, uh, which was a big project in psychoanalysis. Yeah, it's becoming starting with Klein. Sorry, go yeah, ahead. Be, no, I was just saying it's, it's uh, becoming on fawns, right? The becoming uh, without language. That's the mm -hmm. becoming child. That's you know, that's it's it's so easy to forget that in the French, um, which you know adheres to the Latin. This becoming child is, as you were saying, becoming pre-verbal or a-verbal. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a kind of before language or at least a uh, a deprioritization of language yeah i uh i know we didn't really fully exhaust the notion of becoming a better poster but i thought we we did at least uh sort of attack it on the edges um did you have anything to to add to to that point do you have any insights yourself about about this I think it is interesting there's and you kind of tapped into this too is you can kind of so that idea of the limit it can be like the constraining force of the limit is um oftentimes that can be a like that can create the opportunity for for something like lines of flight right but yeah, at the yeah. same like sometimes that can function productively uh but not all the time i think sometimes constraints are really, you know, they operate as you would assume they do. They constrain those abilities. But I think to be cautious and not approach every constraint as a necessarily limiting factor mm -hmm. on, on potential. I agree. I agree. You know, it's, uh, again, to think about when I, when I first started off as a poet, um, you know, just, just, just in my free time, uh, I was very concerned with, with meter, with, um, you know, with rhyme schemes and, but at first it was more or less free verse. I mean, it was, you know, I was experimenting with, um, you know, iambic and anapests and all that, all that stuff. But, uh, I was more or less free verse, but I think that what made me a better poet was going back and, trying and writing sonnets so i wrote like a dozen sonnets i wrote i i even wrote uh three or four villanelles which are uh one of the most demanding forms right you know a, a villanelle really demands uh two lines that are going to be effective affective and effective uh in their juxtaposition and in their repetition um so I felt like to start with free verse is not the way to go. One has to 
get to free verse through through the history of forms and experiment with those formal constraints in order to then know how to you, you know to, to break the law effectively to be a good criminal one has to know the law right so right. It's, it's kind of like that um yeah yeah that's a good point because i think the same applies to film as well it's kind of like you have to know the uh the sort of film story paradigm you know the three-act structure and so forth in order mm -hmm. to understand how to how to break that effectively too I, I i agree i agree um yeah that's that's a good that's a good analogy um and you know quote-unquote postmodern cinema um gets to experiment with temporality and linearity i mean that's that's kind of what deleuze was interested in in the 80s and a lot of uh a lot of scholarship on Deleuze kind of uh, avoids the cinema books because it, it's, it's seemingly unrelated, but it actually is a continuation of his work from the late 60s investigating the image, images of thought. So how does the time image, how does the, uh, the movement image imply a, an engagement with images of thought and affect us as as viewers based on these different kind of semiotic uh paradigms and so um i think that's where guattari shows up in the cinema books is how much deleuze nods to uh to purse and his um you know notions of icons and indexes etc um so like the movie that i i haven't watched in decades but uh that i like to think about in terms of like a movie deleuze would have loved would, or maybe hated maybe he would have shit on it um would be like memento right um <laughs> that's a good one you know i i could see deleuze either i could see him love hating it right i mean i, I could i could see him doing both but I, I could see him engaging with it productively yeah definitely it's non-linear basically little fragments mm -hmm. it's kind of yeah and this whole the whole theory at the end of a thousand plateaus about the brain as the screen this mm -hmm. the, the the work they go into talking about memory um versus blocks of becoming i think that that all of that would be maybe it's too spot on the nose but i think that uh, all of that could be pr productively engaged in um in a delusian quote-unquote reading of memento I need to pick up those cinema books because I'd be interested because that's definitely something I'm super, super interested in. And I definitely, I do movie podcast episodes pretty frequently. Right. That's right. Yeah. I think, I think you should, man. It's, um, and there's also, um, uh, you know, there's recently fully translated seminars. He's got a lot of great seminars on cinema. Um, one of my favorite seminars is he talks, he goes into depth talking about uh, Taxi Driver. It's a great movie. And um, just just beautiful. I mean, Deleuze, I think, is kind of at his highest when he's doing stuff like that, when he's talking about kind of the schizophrenia at, as a process in that in that film. He talks about a taxi driver that way? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I have an essay I'm waiting to be published somewhere. It's kind of using Taxi Driver as this example of uh, micro-political film yes. uh, as opposed to the Avengers 
macro or molar political attempts. This whole, uh, yeah, just a short little essay, but uh, but you yeah, know, you, you kinda, should look at that. You should look at that seminar. It's you'll it, have to it, send me that. Yeah, I will. Uh, it was actually translated um, a long time ago. It was one of the you know because for a long time uh, I think it's called just I think it's like web deleuze.com i don't know yeah uh, they uh, yeah that was one of the the original translations they had of of his um so that's been out there for a while and i'll i'll, I'll track it down and i'll mm-hmm. shoot it to you i think i think you're you're reading the little bit you said about it it, it jives very well with uh with deleuze oh that's great that could be that's an interesting cool. um i think that's an interesting way because Part of what Tori talks about a lot is this um, the relationship between form and content, right? And I think the the film form itself is super fascinating, especially in this context, because what is it? It's all these sort of discrete images that are being sort of compressed together to make this sort of unity. Yep. Right? And it requires the viewer's synthesis active synthesis to make sense and it's like it's weird too because it's so like the form is something that you're learning is that maybe an example of this kind of formulation of the machinic unconscious is kind of getting because like you have if you just saw a film without any context right it would be would it, it would be kind of incomprehensible due to all the disparate elements like it's just a bunch of random elements cuts et cetera et cetera right Mm-hmm. but you learn this kind of weird abstract form that isn't, isn't real. It's not how you really process. Well, maybe that's not true. It's not exactly how you process reality or experience reality in, in terms of the kind of phenomenology of it. It's this sort of totally artificial and structuralized form that you kind of internalize. And that's kind of maybe more so what I was getting at is for that is that being a machinic process? But I don't know. What What are your thoughts? Well, I think you're on to something. I might not have, I think it's something that's uh, hard to articulate due to the density of Guattari's prose, but what I'm picking up from that uh, is kind of like, yeah, like this conversation between content and the plane of expression. And right. Guattari lays out this kind of complex image of this kind of ontology where everything is in this flux and there's all these contingent particles with vectors and they're all like interacting with each other and permeating uh, and creating these structures and all this kind of, it's very science fiction. Uh, And then there's the plane and that all gets kind of filtered. All that chaos kind of gets filtered through whatever plane there is. Yeah. Okay. And if we're on this capitalist plane, it all gets overcoated by these capitalist structures, and this chaos gets kind of filtered through these grids and gets stratified. I think that's kind of what's going on with this film. Yeah. Idea. Yeah. We're yeah. presented with this, uh, with all these disparate uh, experiences, and then along comes the camera and its limits and the human mind and its limits. And we get this nice kind of structured film at the end. Uh, so chaos has kind of been filtered through this plane of exp- uh, expression. 
but I want to default to Taylor on this because <laughs> right. I don't know if that really tracks onto what Guattari is trying to say. That's yeah. always been my understanding. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think so. I think you're right to bring up, you know, I mean, I guess to get to the text a little bit and try to um, try to try to talk about uh, these these three chapters we read. Um, <laughs> so much of the guiding thread through these three chapters, and you see it in the Thousand Plateaus too, uh, you see it in the definition of the rhizome, uh, is, is basically this notion that linguists uh, assume, or at least the, the linguists that he, he, he critiques, they assume on a more overt or subvert uh, level that language rests on universals and that these universals are uh, because linguistics wants to be a science and and claims to be a science or or at least pretends to be uh, it needs these universals to then bootstrap itself to sort of uh, economize its scientific discussions this is why Pragmatics as a sub is considered a subdiscipline of linguistics and pushed back and mm -hmm. pushed back further and further or, or kept away from contaminating this quote unquote the pseudoscientific uh, investigation of language as resting on universals precisely because pragmatics as the um, you know as involving the sort of contextual concrete meaning making. Um, parameters of language it's seen to contaminate the scientific universals that language supposedly rests on so it's by it's precisely this notion that leads him to say well um gee i mean making language rest on universals is really helpful for whatever power formation there is specifically mm -hmm. capitalism which uh it, it which which works very well with uh with these with with sort of uh, sweeping under the rug the, the, the different pragmatic uh, micropolitical elements that actually go into uh, all the, the dynamic aspects, all the asperities too uh, of language. I mean, for Guattari, uh, it's precisely the asperities that, that we need in order to investigate um, the micropolitical dynamics of language. And I think that for him, um, it's, it's, it's sad to see psychoanalysis attach itself to linguistics in such a way as to then promote itself scientifically. I mean, it's, yes. it's, it's, it's it, and, and so it's this conjunction of analysis and linguistics and seeking universals, whether it be late Freud and seeking sort of the universal drama of human existence and, mm -hmm. and the edible conflict, which they claim is colonialism or, uh, linguists, um, uh, you know, he says linguists are imperialists, right? And, and it's this notion of this, that, that, that sort of everything can be linguistified and therefore rendered universal and, and, and rendered uh, self-legitimate um, without reference to the actual dynamics of power that in the first place grounds them. So it's like, it's kind of covering up for... Um, but it's also a kind of idealism. I mean, and in one of the footnotes, he says that we still haven't had a Marx and Engels of, ling, uh, of linguistics to, to sort of set it right side up. Uh, it's, it's still kind of standing on its head. It's still sort of, it's still sort of assuming 
the very thing it needs to claim to be axiomatized. And, and so I think that it's, this is why he's relentless about uh, what he calls abstract machines or machinic extracts, as he'll also call them, because they are precisely what one needs in order to begin to diagram the, what, what Deleuze would call an image of thought, that linguistics and psychoanalysis presume a sort of, a sort of universalist image of thought that, um, well, for example, like Lacan relying on the Cartesian ego or the Cartesian I, uh, the I think that uh, this, this Cartesian ego actually presupposes a standard model of a, of a white, heterosexual, able-bodied adult male um, ver the very like center of power from which like waves of sameness propagate outward that uh, you know allow for um, variations of otherness to be sort of hierarchized and so that I think that that's as a, a as an analyst and, and here's where I would turn to to DC like as a as an analyst, I think Watchery is, is, is seeking to undermine that, that normative standard model precisely because that leads back to presuming that everyone who has, who, who, who needs therapy should be uh, neuroticized, should be, rent, should be treated as one treats neurotics. Uh, and, and, and I think for Watchery, language is not enough. Language is a tool to, to help uh, dealing with analytic problems dealing with the, mm -hmm. the analysis but it's it's not enough you, you can't you can't the talking cure has to be plugged in plugged back into um to real consistencies to yes. to to uh to actual life and yes. um yes without that it's it's without that it's self-enclosed and it's and it's a black hole and it's just sort of circling around the drain right yeah no i think and Deleuze and Guattari are coming at this problem at the same time that these kind of hardcore psychoanalysts are realizing it in their own way. Uh, Lacan obviously brought in language to psychoanalysis to an extent that wasn't there with Freud. Freud had, you know, the psychopathology of everyday life and things like that. But uh, Lacan really made it a language game about math themes. And, uh, Andre Green, who is mentioned in uh, Anti-Oedipus yep. um, and A Thousand Plateaus, uh, and whom mentions Deleuze and Guattari in his work, he writes this wonderful uh, two books I have by him that are great, The Work of the Negative and The Fabric of Affect. So basically his whole project is mm -hmm. yep. Lacan missed affect, and totally doesn't understand feelings, basically, yes. or sense experience of the body. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and psychoanalysis starts as a materialist science. Freud was attempting to get at some sort of materialism. And that totally gets lost with Lacan, even though he, Lacan does some cool stuff with the body and the signifier. Sure, but, uh, sure. Green's whole thing is let's get back to affect, which I think is Guattari's whole thing, like you're saying. Agreed. What is, and that's kind of what I do with patients. Uh, uh, you know, patients bring me all kinds of uh, ideas and sentences, blah, blah, blah. And 
I always try to uncode, is that your idea or is that someone else's idea in your life? You know, how did you get that into your head? Where does that come from? And more often than not, these aren't ideas that these people naturally came to on their own. They're these things they've inherited from their parents or from society, and they filter all their feelings through uh, those kind of models, which I think is this kind of content and form or content and plane of expression dichotomy that Guattari's getting uh, at. You've got to get away from this overcoding. Yes. Uh, people constantly overcode themselves. Uh, and psychoanalysis will play right into that by getting caught up in these traps, thinking that, oh, the patient talked about their mother today. That confirms the, uh, the Oedipus complex. It's like, well, no, the, the patient knows that you're a psychoanalyst and they're kind of trying yep. to give you something that you want to hear. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of confirmed that by a lot of social sciences that we do code our communications in response to what we think we'll get out of the, the, the uh, communication. So. I agree with that. Yeah, it's like diagramming inception, right? It's yeah. Where how, how did this how did this idea become incepted? And I think for Guattari, it's not to enjoy the inception, to 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 sort of em embrace it, but to to unravel it and also to uh, to beef beef up the 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 defense, uh, not necessarily of the ego, but of one's diagramming capabilities um and i guess i would say that it what you were just saying about um about throwing the analyst a bone it kind of reminds me of what we know now of what we should have already known maybe what we've always known but we know that uh torture doesn't work as a form of extracting genuine information yeah that the that the the one undergoing torture will say anything uh, that they think will get them out of that situation. And yeah. so that intel is not reliable. Um, and so there is a kind of, and this perhaps gets to transference, there is a kind of situation of duress in this bouncing signifiers off, off the wall, uh, sort of, you know, the, the white wall, black hole. Um, but that, we can leave off the white wall for, the next time where we'll talk about faciality uh that's uh getting ahead of ourselves i guess something that kind of jumped out at me from the text in this that dichotomy between content and form too was i if i'm not mistaken he was drawing maybe i'm conflating this with the chapter of plateaus but um he was applying this to kind of um like evolution evolutionary developments Mm -hmm. and how maybe something, some like physical, whatever, appendage um, developed in a way that form is totally, I guess, separate from like a, um, I guess like a function, from a functional, like the form and function are disconnected. Mm -hmm. Right. And ex yeah. even expressed at the level of like physical evolution, for example. I think, you know, teleology, no more teleology, even though they right. used Lamarck in the challenger and Lamarck was the T Talos guy and Darwin was the guy that said, no, you got that wrong Lamarck. There is no Talos. It's, it's random genetic variation. And, uh, you know, um, but I think, 
yeah, uh, a species could survive. Well, this is, an, this is a funny connection. So I actually have the ethology book that Watari had that he studied. Nice. Um, I actually... Is it, is it what was his name? Is it like Abelsfeld? What, what, yes. Like that? Yes, I have it. Um, funny story. I was at my analytic institute, and we have a free book shelf, and I would peruse it often to get the free books. And one day, before I knew about Deleuze and Guattari, Anti-Oedipus was there, stacked with that ethology book. Oh, yeah. Because one of my, you know, professors who grew up in like, or not grew up, whose career probably peaked in the 80s, big social science guy, mm -hmm. um, he, his name was on both those books. So he clearly bought them to research and then didn't use them and then put them there. But uh, <laughs> so I have that ethology book that Guattari cites a lot. Um, and I've read the whole thing and in it, it talks about how evolution will, you know, random genetic variation will create forms, but when a human researches it, it'll assume that the forms have functions they don't. So there are animals that will develop certain uh, forms that are actually very functional, but then there's also all these accidental forms that kind of get uh, lumped in with the functional form just by accident. And a way to think about it is, uh, you know, when these politicians try to pass these bills and it'll be a bill about healthcare, but then in, in the healthcare bill, they'll all also stick in these other things like, yes, yes. well, if you, if you want to vote for the healthcare bill, you also have to vote for cutting this and cutting that. And yep, yep. so these things slip in through, well, for the human agency there isn't accidental, but that's how nature works. We, you could get the tiger who, uh, who has the spots on the back of the ear so predators think it's looking at it but associated to that uh evolutionary trait are a bunch of accidental evolutionary traits that have no function uh so maybe that's why you get stuff like what is it the, the, the gallbladder in humans that we don't know what its function is yet it continues to exist right so I, don't know, I just took this on a tangent but i think it's important to guattari's theory that like you said cooper form and function aren't necessarily correlated our form could have all these non-functional parts that we just think are functional because we've tricked ourselves into believing they are yeah i think there's something too in there with because he later uh, guattari talks about how you can have uh he talks about dna or code being like a sign but without i forget the exact context do you, do you recall the passage that i'm talking about he's talking about the there's genetic code has signs in it, but it doesn't. Uh, they're they're an asignifying. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And so I I thought that was kind of an interesting. I don't know. I hadn't really thought about that. Mm -hmm. But um, but I mean, part of what uh, DC was saying was you know with 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 the ethologist with the uh, with the observer the partial observer or whatever. Um, it it the the meaning is sort of baked in that things signify right? Um, right in atp they talk about like someone gave you a funny look you you're walking trip what walking down the street yeah. you know the the watch is uh, you know uh whatever it doesn't matter what it means it still signifies so we're we're, we're sort of you know we, we we traverse various strata with various consistency at the same time right the uh this is part of my thread about the the molar the molecular and the abstract you know we're we're sort of we're stratified 
uh, in various ways, and, and we're, we're also following these different lines at the same time, and we're, we're sort of, as humans, because language is this technology that sort of uh, we're hardwired with, and, um, you know, uh, although it's not innate, but uh, generally speaking, we, uh, through socialization, we sort of, um, again, it's kind of baked in, we, we, we're, we're always sort of on a, a semiological plane and and I think this goes back to that critique of linguistics is linguistics assumes that it's all semiology or that semiology can explain everything else or can uh, effectively provide the diagrammatic strength to sort of the Archimedean point to sort of lift all of the various problems and, and for uh, for Guattari it it's actually on the level of the a signifying on the level of the diagrammatic the the agrammatical that that uh that a lot of the micropolitical vectors uh form and swarm so um if we we as analysts or just as theorists or or as thinkers as humans we sort of do a disservice to the complexity of phenomena when we when we remain on the uh, merely on the plane of language as though it were able to effectively um, sort of grasp the, the the molecular and the abstract layers wherein language is not presupposed, wherein it is not uh, first philosophy. It's, um, you know, it's, it, w one needs a, I mean, to use a metaphor that Laura Well uses, we need a kind of a non-Euclidean linguistics, right? Yeah. We need a sort of non-Euclidean uh, analysis, and um, and and, it, and 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 that means that certain postulates, certain self-sufficient, self-legitimizing postulates of linguistics of analysis, have to be suspended in order to kind of see the point at which uh parallel lines do meet in infinity so to speak yeah that's funny you mentioned that i was just reading rereading my little geometry book from uh the 70s last night about euclid non-euclidean mm -hmm. space and as i'm writing this blog post about faith how kant the five postulates you euclid and comes along and he's like here's why the fifth one is possible and then Einstein comes along and it's like no space is actually curved That's yep. why yeah pretty cool no it's, it's exactly right so it's it's about a kind of a curvature of which is the body without organs the geodesic sphere mm -hmm. or that's redundant but you know what I mean and then the cut the up egg. by all these yep. matrices and yeah he actually talks about that Quattari talks about that at the beginning the first or second chapter the the idea of uh all possibilities can be imagined on the surface of a sphere right that's yeah. good that's good yeah uh you know he he only uses that phrase body without organs five times in in the machine unconscious um and it and, mm. and he never he never really explains it so i'm 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 curious to know um because obviously body without organs is used in a way to diagram the socius and, and anti-oedipus and it and and it's it's it takes on a more fleshed out form excuse my pun in uh in 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 a, in a thousand plateaus um 
but I think that perhaps the the stand-in in these chapters for the body without organs is is the plane of consistency, right? The sort mm-hmm. of the, the 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 plane of abstract consistency that is outside of coordinates or or, or within the the very foundation of coordinates, um, and and that's that's sort of the the level of you know these lines of absolute deterritorialization. Um, <laughs> I don't know, Coop. You got you got a. You, you want to keep us going? I I don't want to cut you out, man. Can we get to your intro questions? <laughs> <laughs> uh, to some to some degree, you covered those fairly well, I think. Um, Did you want to go back and touch on any of them we missed? Um, I was looking through the some of the quotes that I pulled, and I was wondering if there was one quote that kind of applied to what you were just referring to. Um, but I'm trying to. I do like the quote you were looking at a little earlier about when he says um, deterritorialization precedes the strata. I thought mm-hmm. that was kind of, I thought that was pretty cool. Well, I, there was one at the kind of towards the end that I thought was really interesting when he was, and that kind of ties into the the evolutionary discussion is how like the, uh, the breast was a deterritorialized something and I'm going to try to find the quote. It's easy to, <laughs> right. to kind of blend the two books together, even if they have totally different forms. You know, ATP is obviously uh, extremely experimental in form. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, actually, here's a good quote from ATP that I think kind of goes, it kind of fits into the discussion. The preferred method would be severely restrictive as opposed to the expansive method that places signs on all strata or signifier in all signs. Mm-hmm. Although at the limit, it may forgo signs entirely. First, there exist forms of expression without signs. For example, the genetic code has nothing to do mm-hmm. with language. It is only under certain conditions that strata can be said to include signs. Signs cannot be equated with language in general, but are defined by regimes of statements that are so many real usages or functions of language. Then why return, retain the word sign for these regimes, which formalize an expression without designating or signifying the simultaneous con- contents? which are formalized in a different way. Signs are not signs of a thing. They are signs of deterritorialization and re-territorialization. They mark a certain threshold crossed in the course of these movements. Yeah, that's, that's good. Uh, it, um, that's uh, what Peirce would call you know, indexes, or at least indexes would be on the level of territoriality, but... Um, that's obviously retaining the word sign is is a I think a uh, an, is homage is an homage to uh, to purse and it's precisely you know I mean the perspective of semiology as he lays out in the first chapter of machine for conscious is this perspective opened by Roland Bart who uh, sort of uh, sees the sign as as pertaining to language specifically and and that's what he will define as semiology whereas the semiotic aspect is um, a signifying, a grammatical. Um, or you could you could call them forces, but he he still reserves that notion of sign to to be on that semiotic level. I did also. It, uh, okay, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, that, and that's <laughs> it's really that that level of the semiotic, um, the a signifying that 
he reserves for the molecular and the abstract consistencies. And that's where real transformational schizoanalysis uh, functions on the, it functions on those levels uh, of the redundancies of interaction, which are outside or despite or below, however you want to phrase it, uh, signifying fields. So I found the quote that I was referring to. It's actually, it is from a thousand plateaus. I'm going to go ahead and read this. Cause I think this is, Really interesting. Not only is a hand a detour terrorized front paw, the hand that thus the hand thus freed is itself deterritorialized in relation to the grasping and locomotive hand of the monkey, the synergistic deterioralizations of other organs, for example, the foot must be taken into account. Mm -hmm. So must correlative deterritorializations of the milieu, the step as an associated milieu more deterritorialized in the forest. Exerting mm -hmm. a selective pressure of deterritorialization upon the body and technology, it was on the step, not in the forest, that the hand was able to appear as a free form and fire as a technologically formable matter. Mm -hmm. Continued once again, a whole intensive map must be accounted for the mouth as a deterritorialization of the snout. The whole mm -hmm. conflict between the mouth and the brain, as Perrier called it. The lips as a deterritorialization of the mouth, only humans having lips, and in other words, an outward curling of the interior mucous membranes, only human females have breasts, in other words, deterritorialized mammary glands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just great. Yeah, it's all very ethological. Ethological? Yeah, yeah, either one. <laughs> I think that I think that the the whole that I, I believe if I'm not wrong, that's, uh, is that from Plato 3? Yes. That's the one with Challenger. Yeah, I think that, that they're discussing Leroy Gorhan and the, um, what is Speech and Gesture, um, which is one of his books that's been translated, I believe. Uh, but uh, I could be wrong. I know that they bring up Leroy Gorhan at some point to talk about this sort of evolution of, of, um, of the hand and the, and the, and language as these technologies, as these deterritorialized forms. Even going further with that too, later on, um, what a curious deterritorialization filling one's mouth with words instead of food and noises. That's Deleuze. That's, that's logic of sense, right? With Alice. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I do think that for a proper study of anti-Oedipus, um, logic of sense is, is fairly essential. A lot of what Deleuze puts forth there gets deterritorialized in anti-Oedipus, um, specifically like the paralogisms of the unconscious, uh, you know, um, the different syntheses or the different... Um, well, the different syntheses, but also uh, the different regimes of uh, of production, you know, of, of inclusive disjunction and uh, et cetera. But anyway, uh, no, those, those are good quotes. It, I've, I've been trying to find a document I wrote that expands on that, but I can't find it. But it's all very much related to where I get my namesake from, D.C. Barker, the... Uh, hyperstitional character uh, from the CCRU. Um, he has this bit, uh, 
well, I'm not going to go into it. I'll just butcher it. But this idea that kind of like what, uh, what we're talking about from this plateau three professor challenger and all that stuff. Uh, and from the ethological perspective that, uh, language has all these psychoacoustic elements to it. And this is actually the cool part of Chomskyans. I have this psycho, uh, psycho, uh, linguistic book that talks mm -hmm. about this, but, and it's, this connects up with Guattari's project that language is a materialist, uh, uh, event, you know, the, the way your jaw is structured and the way your esophagus works and how much air can be pushed out of your lungs uh, affects the way you, you talk. Um, and phonemes are just these little bits of sound that have to do with how much air you can push through your throat and how you can shape your mouth and your tongue. That's why children have speech impediments. They can't yes. get their tongue into the right position to channel the air to create these different sounds and piece these sounds together to create words, etc. So when you get interested in the, in a kind of Marxist sense, the material, uh, biological material structure of the face and the mouth and how that allows for language, uh, you get into these cool Guattarian, Deluso Guattarian themes of, you know, they talk about singing, uh, language, speech is just deterritorialized singing. Yes. Um, and in the piece I wrote that I can't find, you know, Deleuze and Guattari talk about alliances a lot and uh, territories, which is all ethological. Um, to sing is the a-signifying method of uh, forming an alliance. When animals hear each other sing, they're able to communicate information, like birds. When you... Well, yeah. Well, when you growl, it's the a-signifying uh, communication for enemies. It says, yeah. you should be scared of me or I'm scared of you. We can't cooperate right now. This is not an alliance. And how the infant, this is where it gets psychoanalytic. When the infant is born, obviously, it has no use of language. It screams or cries or coos. Yeah. And the coo is basically a sing. You know, we sing to our children and they kind of sing back. And the cry and the scream is the closest thing to a growl. And how much air you can push through your mouth and how you can form that, for at least for the infant, will determine to an extent which care you get, you know? So it's all very analytic. It's all very, uh, I'm a little chaotic and all over the place with it, but there's a lot of interesting connections there. Um, and that all ends no. up in DC Barker's, you could, they call it TikTok. Um, a signifying ways of speaking. But anyways, that's, that's my spiel on that stuff. I think it's all very interesting. No, it's, it's very good. And it, it, it actually harkens back to, I mean, Rousseau wrote about this a lot. Uh, the, uh, and, and Derrida works with it, you know, in of grammatology, but it's mm -hmm. uh, the sort of the origin of music and origin of language and uh, starting with the, with the cries. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, I think that this is again becoming child, becoming infant. Um, yes. And, and and you're right. I mean, it, you know, in our in our next episode, I suppose we'll we'll get to talk about refrains because we'll get to talk about bird songs. And you know, I I, I forget who was it was it you Coop? It was like 
or no, I think it was someone else who, who was who was like, why the why the fuck does Guattari talk about bird songs and and it's That's precisely yeah, yeah, it's precisely this that what DC was talking about. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's in a machine gun conscious or if it's in lines of flight or if it's in schizoanalytic cartographies but it also shows up in thousand plateaus where they talk about the bird that flips over leaves uh to mark its territory yeah that's that's mentioned in mu and atp i think yeah which i think is uh guattari loved ethology just as a biographical fact is he he loved reading about animals and uh so becoming animal, you know, of course, is a concept of theirs and Yep. And what they lay out in the in the Challenger plateau there is scientifically accurate and philosophically interesting, which is hard to make the two uh correlate, but Yes. The face is a deterritorialized snout, you know, and mm-hmm. the lips curl up. That's the inside getting out. It's all it's all very interesting. That's my favorite chapter of a thousand plateaus. So. It's it's definitely one of the most difficult, but it's it's one of the most rewarding because it it it, it really does constellate a lot of the the lines of uh, of of concepts of conceptualization uh, throughout the the book, and it and it is it's, it concentrates uh, a lot of the refrains that they get relayed uh throughout mm-hmm. and so it, it is a kind of a uh a very important plateau but it but it, it it is it is very difficult coming upon it after the more or less easy uh plateau on 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 the wolf on the wolf pack yes and um so i think this is why they they suggest reading atp like like one listens to a record because it's uh it, it is it is super linear in a certain sense and so one uh one has to return one has to uh replay one has to there are these choral uh segments throughout inter interspliced throughout and so it's it's very um it's very rewarding to to reread and 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 to sort of catch different inflections of the same uh of the same refrain absolutely and they definitely um, yeah go ahead interestingly too so further on in that third plateau they move into using foucault as a good example and it's again going back to that dichotomy (coughs) of content and form and applying it to um i'll just read the little section here take a thing like the prison the prison is a form the prison form it is a form of content on a stratum and is related to other forms of content school barracks hospital factories this thing or form does not refer back to the word prison but to entirely different words and concepts such as delinquent and delinquency which expresses a new way of classifying stating translating and even committing criminal acts delinquency is in no way a signifier even a juridical signifier the signified of which would be the prison that would flatten out the entire analysis. Moreover, the form of expression is reducible not to words, but to a set of statements arising in the social field considered as a stratum. That is what a regime of signs is. The form mm-hmm. of content is, reduci- is reducible not to a thing, but to a complete state of things as a formation of power. Yeah, there's a there's a really spicy footnote on Foucault and in, in, in the machine of unconscious. And I'm, 
I'm trying to find it. Um, and, and if I do, I will definitely read it out. He, it seems, it seems kind of, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely in, indicative of the fact that um, Guattari had some reservations about Foucault, and I believe it's particularly the history of sexuality um, that he takes a, a certain dig at, um, which would kind of show a different allegiance than Deleuze had, obviously Deleuze being sort of best buddies. But yeah, uh, what's his name? I know that, is it Eibel? Uh, uh, Ibel, yeah. I, Ibel, yeah. Yeah. Um, I know that uh, Simon Doan, uh, he uh, also relies on Ibel's felt pretty heavily in uh, in a few sections where he's talking about the biological stratum. And, um, and so it is interesting to see that Guattari draws pretty heavily on him for the uh, for discussion of birds. Mm -hmm. Well, this guy was the, uh, if you can see the book, even though the video will be deleted. Um, he was pretty much the biggest uh, ethologist of this mm -hmm. time. And let's see, this book's from 1970. It's the first okay. edition. So that, that makes sense then. Yeah. It would have been got all kinds of cool stuff in it. Pictures of birds and uh, diagrams, you know, it's all very cool. Like stuff like this, which looks like it's straight from Guattari, which maps onto scientific models that are empirical. So, <laughs> anyways, I'll shut up about ethology. <laughs> no, I think it's interesting. Um, I was thinking about two, I forgot to mention this earlier, but I don't know this this ethological aspect and baboon asses i have always thought <laughs> was like the most bizarre shit bizarre bizarre shit ever yes and that's what that kind of we were talking about earlier the discussion like that form and content and how like these spurious forms that don't have real uh function can arise and that's the first thing i thought of was the baboon ass yes yes spurious good use what what does it signify? Uh, <laughs> yeah. What was that? The baboon ass. The baboon ass. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, uh, the question of what it signifies is 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 sort of uh, sort of biased by our again our our, our human partial observer nature. Um, you know, uh, he. I suppose that the baboon ass in its bare bareness is what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. So it is a kind of deterritorialized uh, glute of the animal. Um, and why it is such, maybe an ethologist will be able to tell. But I do think that it's interesting, um, you know, in his discussion of baboons defending the territory and the way in which the male baboons standing sentinel-like at the edge of the territory facing neighboring baboon groups of the same species. You know, he, he talks about them wielding their, 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 their brightly colored uh, genitals, right? So mm -hmm. sort, of, sort of menacingly stroking 
their schlongs uh, to to as a threat. I mean, I I I I know we tweeted about this together, but I I sort of you know I, I you know what what Guatri is pointing to is this this use of sexual organs and this use of uh, sort of a kind of phallic aggression as as a as a way of um, intimidating right as a but it, but it only signifies quote unquote it only has sense makes sense for um for these neighboring uh baboons of the same mm -hmm. species it doesn't it doesn't signify for uh, or you know it, it, it doesn't have any meaning doesn't doesn't work for for any other species um so so yeah i mean it's um Manichaean okay. phallic power. Yeah, it's a Manichaean phallic power. You're right. It's this. <laughs> is this either or? Uh, it, but but the either or isn't isn't a sort of passive active sexually, right? It's it's it only uses that as a vector of of deploying, exuding a kind of big dick energy, um, <laughs> and maybe as a form of mockery maybe as a form of intimidation it's sort of they're all sort of interspliced but it's but it's all in defense of the territory it's not linked to sexuality in any uh simplistic way mm -hmm. so it's kind of a deterritorialization then of of sexual energy oh, a, yeah. uh, a, a turning outward um <laughs> maybe to, to switch up a little bit i'm kind of curious and this might even be this is more like an anti-Oedipus question or statement is how does like to contrast Lacan's concept of desire and and the lack versus Deleuze and Guattari's as with desire as a as a productive capacity are those are those two necessarily in conflict with one another because to me it doesn't feel like that necessarily they are because the lack, I think, I think the lack can create the desire, with, but that desire can still be productive. Like, I don't know that there's a... I think, uh, I think Lacan and Deleuze and Guattari are talking about two different kinds of desire. I yes. Think, okay. I think Deleuze and Guattari, and this is, this is the title of a Nick Land essay, are talking about machinic desire. And that is this productive, pre-verbal, material force that uh, insists on pulsating and thrumming away indefinitely and just churning. Uh, and then I think Lacan is stuck in kind of this anthropocentric register of talking about humans um, and what humans end up wanting when they've been denied things through what tend to be regular human occurrences. Like we all have mom, moms and dads, even though Deleuze and Guattari talk about having no mommy poppy or whatever. Um, and we're all, see, I'm, I'm a psychoanalyst, so I, I use both, you know, like yeah. when the, when the patient comes to me and it's really evident that they're, ability to relate to people now is definitely related to uh, their experiences with their parents. It's like, well, we might want to talk about that and explore that. 
but at the same time, it doesn't mean that's all there is. Um, I think so. I think in that sense, Deleuze and Guattari and Lacan are talking about two different kinds of desire. Okay. Lacan's anthropocentric, Deleuze and Guattari are trying to get away from the human. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. And that, I guess, too, goes to this. Uh, here's a good quote. And I think, you know, we met, you briefly just tapped on this earlier about, uh, I guess, the contrast between this enunciation, the I, and so forth. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read this passage for us. The representation of a listener speaker as the fictitious pole of the production of statements becoming increasingly abstract to them, and the fact that one continues to speak through the mouth of individuals nevertheless takes on an increasingly relative scope. The statement is emitted and received by complex assemblages of individuals, bodies, material and social machines, semiotic, mathematical, scientific machines, etc., which are the true sources of the enunciation. So that would, yes. kind of, isn't that, that's kind of basically <clears throat> pretty much what you were getting at, right, DC? Or am I? Mm -hmm. am I yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a de-anthropomorphization. It's a de, it's a, uh, it decentralizes any sort of, uh, sort of ego form that would be the, that would represent or be the representative of, of an individual unconscious. And I think that that's price. I think that, the, the, that when, um, despite it never really having maybe taken off as a discipline, I think the, the benefit of schizoanalysis versus as, as a descriptor versus psychoanalysis, um, apart from its theor its, its theoretical, you know, differences is the fact that, uh, psychoanalysis, uh, presumes the psyche to be the unifying factor to be the, uh, the, the, to undergird all the, the analyses. And so it kind of assumes a, a unity, a, a pre, a preformed, uh, it assumes a given. And, uh, uh, you know, obviously the notion of skits is, um, it, it ruptures with this. It already, it, it argues that the skits precedes the, the psyche, so to speak, right? So yeah. that the, the break, the rupture, the, the, the brokenness, the non-unified nature of, mm -hmm. of the unconscious, but also the, the non-human terminals too, as you pointed out in your quote, right, about the different, uh, the different machinic inputs that are uh, animating what he would call the machinic unconscious. It's not a, it's not a human unconscious. It's not an individual unconscious. It's, uh, it's sort of permeated by all these different machines and assemblages. It's, it's, it's the productive aspect of, of yeah. desire. It doesn't presume what, um, it doesn't presume a certain given in order to then proceed, uh, quote unquote, scientifically or whatever, right? It, 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 it's um it's always in 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 a process it's always in a flux um yeah yeah the, the human is just an articulation of impersonal inhuman forces yes which is what freud was trying to get at before he got caught up i have this whole ebook freud really goes wrong at the same time he hits his most interesting idea he hits the death drive in 1920 but then world war 1 and world war 2 uh, happen and he slips into this humanism it jars him so much for obvious reasons that we can't blame him for but those things jar him so much that he slips into basically doing political philosophy with this very kind of yes. Rousseauian uh, uh, humanist bent uh, this idea that um, yeah blah 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 we don't need to go all into that but the whole idea of pre-1920 and before psychoanalysis is that 
impersonal, inhuman forces uh, get territorialized and consciousness is kind of like a feedback arc of experience that is fragmented. And then we have all these conflicts. And Melanie Klein, even though they shit on her a lot in Anti-Oedipus, was actually uh, one of the first people to say, no, the schizophrenic position uh, comes before the Oedipal position. We're basically born little schizos. We don't have language. We don't have concepts. Time to the infant doesn't exist. It's just this kind of oceanic wave of uh, intensity. Polymorphous perversity, right? Exactly. There's just these waves of sensation that translate into the body as tensions, and the infant tries to produce screams or cries to reduce the tensions through the caretaker. Um, and then things got really carried away because even though Lacan introduced, like D&G point out, some schizoanalytic vectors, he really doubles down on the language stuff, as we've talked about, and kind of says, I'm returning to Freud, and here's what Freud said. And he makes it all about uh, language, and he forgets affect in the body, which is yeah. He what sort we're of talking uh, about here. He sort of betrays his um, his initial ideas, and I mean, this is where I find Laplanche interesting because he yes. turns to the early seduction theory stuff. Yes. Um, obviously, La we're kind of getting off topic, but I do think that there are. Um, I do think that that Laplanche has a lot to say in his generalization of seduction theory that yeah. that that is uh also helpful for um doesn't doesn't map perfectly with Guattari but I think it, it, it definitely uh converges in, in interesting ways yeah well Laplanche is the only psychoanalyst D&G invited to their conference or whatever I didn't uh, know that yeah um or to hang out with them it's in a footnote somewhere Deleuze I, that that's great Deleuze and Guattari are like yeah we'll invite Laplanche Laplanche was one of the few people that they liked and who liked them. Uh, yeah, Laplanche and Andre Green are the best French psychoanalysts, in my opinion. So. Yeah, I haven't read enough Green, so I'll have to. I'll have to. I I, I kind of osmotically absorb some of Green because um, had a great teacher uh, mm -hmm. who was who was also an analyst, and we. Uh, she she was very deep into affect theory, specifically mm -hmm. uh, specifically Leotard. Um, later yeah. leotard he's great and and so she was mobilizing leotard with laplanche uh, in order to um sort of um provide affect theoretical frameworks for for discussing some some of this eerie french literature mm -hmm. uh, that we were doing <laughs> that sounds great yeah she's she's a great teacher i respect her a lot uh claire nouvet that's her name um i think she you sent me her before i looked into her okay yeah good good i i forgotten i had yeah she I, I believe she still teaches it anyway so i hope so she's one of the best teachers i've ever had um new freud like front and back in mm -hmm. french german and english just like <laughs> it's amazing just she was a specimen man she was Still can't find that fucking Foucault footnote. I am all good. very, very sad. I am. It was spicy. In I this, think you would have liked that. It's uh, <laughs> let's see. In this respect, I will not follow Michel Foucault in the history of sexuality when he appears to consider that a general tendency 
of sexual repression and the rise of capitalism were not co-committant. Undoubtedly, there is always about as much sexuality from one age to another, Mm -hmm. but the question of repression is very different. It relates to the nature of the desire associated with the sexuality. The contemporary expansion of discourses relating to sexuality, Foucault justifiably emphasizes, does not at all constitute an attenuation of this repression. Quite the contrary. Mm. It is correct today that all power formations are increasingly worried about sexuality, but it is precisely in order to better subject it to capitalistic codes, in order to miniaturize and internalize its repression. The whole difficulty here stems perhaps from the fact that Foucault never poses these questions in terms of desire, but only in terms of sexuality. Yes. Yeah, that's... I, 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 so I guess it's not a dig at him. I mean, he, he does put some, uh, put some thought into why he diverges. Um, which, uh, do you know what chapter that's, that footnote's for? I think it's that's, on page that's, 345 of the text and 46. Is where the note okay, is, so it's so it's in the ref- it's in the refrain, yeah, it's in the refrains. Uh, so we'll be able to get to that uh, next time. There was one quote yeah, too I'd- that I wanted to get back to that I think uh, was interesting. It tied back to bef- before our um, tangent on on Laplanche and so forth. If it is true that abstract machines arise neither from the subject-object phenomenological couple nor the set subset logical couple and consequently escape from the semiological triangle denotative representation signification, then how do we conceive the possibility of saying anything about them? What will, what will become of representation when there is no longer a subject to record it? All right. Yeah. I'm actually writing a, uh, I submitted an essay. These guys contacted me to a horror magazine. Oh, nice. Uh, let's see. Uh, it's called Oh Nothing Press. The magazine's called Creeper. But uh, I was just talking to the guy about that quote because I submitted it and then gave me some edits. And then I said, hey, can I, can I write a postscript to my piece? Because that quote is just so beautiful. It's this idea of just the classic philosophical question of what happens when there's not an observer observing. Uh, you know, it's a more interesting version of if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear blah, blah, blah. But when you think about it in line with, as Taylor pointed out on our text, uh, this idea of Guattari's particles and like all these vectors and, um, you know, kind of that, that quantum physics idea of uh, when observed, they behave differently. It's what would this deterritorialized, inhuman kind of preconceptual mass look like without any human observer there? Uh, very, very Nickelandian, you know, a future without the human. What is that like? Um, I don't have any answer. It's just a very interesting question. <laughs> yeah, to no, I think I, about. I agree, and I'm very curious about that. Like, what are the consequences of that? Like. I ended up writing for this horror magazine because they read my blog entry on tinnitus, um, because I have tinnitus. So I imagine a future without the human would be like tinnitus, just these these, uh, pitches and blocks of sound and these waves of affect and these different intensities that can't be uh, decomposed. Um, 
that's something that always sticks with me from anti-Oedipus. They talk about heat, how heat is a quantity and a quality, and it can't be broken down and added back up. If you take 24 degrees and add it to 24 degrees, you do not get 48 degrees. You get two items at the same temperature meeting. <laughs> so like, that's an intensity. So I think, and we can't think those things. That's like the Kantian question. That's the limit of our synthetic mind. We can't think beyond our concepts and our transcendental categories, but to really get past that would be really to get to the outside, which is, uh, I don't know, that's all very interesting stuff. That's where aesthetics come in, um, you know, experiences we can't explain, horror, all the fun stuff. <laughs> Even dreams, I think. Yes. Yes, dreams. Um, yes. There's some other uh, content in the chapters that we read that I think are maybe where we can focus the the last bit of the discussion on. Is, mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to go ahead and read this one just, just to see what this generates. Um, but this is definitely something that I found kind of interesting. There's a few more that are tied here. Um, capitalist extraction must unceasingly recreate the void reproduce the splitting and isolation of an individuated subject in relation to assemblages of enunciation. The signifier must be incessantly reproduced by consciential components and signifying simulations selected to be transformed by diagra diagrammatic components. Speech and writing, for example, are never powerless in themselves, but always due to a syntagmization and a paradigm. Ah paradigmatization that overcodes them. Nevertheless, this powerlessness is always in some part secretly defeated because of what deterritorialized machines of expression on the level of the profound articulations of their figures of expression themselves tend to es escape. Yeah, this is, this is all, yeah, we, we are making a, a nice full circle because this <laughs> is all, um, you know, this is all coming back to undermining or or questioning this need to rely on universals of language and how that 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 need to be scientific quote unquote uh by by assuming universals of language it it, it already presupposes and actually um reinforces um the sort of self-legitimizing self-sufficient uh power formations that that uh demand it so um so this notion of speech and writing are uh are, are they they are rendered powerlessness precisely because of the certain um sort of regime of signs that bolsters it or the certain presuppositions uh in play i mean this is precisely i think again Larwell's uh diagnosis of philosophy as exploiting man or generic man's essence um this sort of exploitation this image of thought that exploits uh on its own account and it precisely works because it's presupposed uh but it's 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 on the level of abstract consistency and the level of um of abstract machines where everything actually sort of comes together and and functions it's precisely on that level that we see uh the um, we see the, the error, we see, we see the lie, uh, that, you know, um, 
that overcodes everything. Uh, you know, we, 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 we pierce the veil, so to speak. And that's where analysis, revolutionary analysis, right? That's where it needs to go. That's where schizoanalysis has to, to eventually get its way to. It can work on the level of, you know, redundancies of resonance, you know, the signifying fields. It can, it can, it can perform sort of, uh, you know, weak um, modifications. It, it, can, it can obviously uh, always, always allow for speech and writing to, to plug back into the, to the rhizome, but it's, it's precisely at that level that we are working uh, on the level of molecular and abstract consistency where the quote unquote um, sort of real inter, uh, interactions are occurring. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not to d disparage language as a, as a, as a, as a lever, as a, as a lever for, for uh, investigating the unconscious. It's just that, that, that the analyst uh, can't stop there. That that's, that's just the beginning. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's merely the superficial layer. That's true. That's like you're you're pretty much uh, that's a good paraphrasing of this quote from the text. Thus, this operation always appears to be self-evident. The syntag, the syntagmums of power, its presuppositions, its threats, its methods of intimidation, seduction, and submission are conveyed at an unconscious level, a little like those subliminal images that are advertising companies insert into a film. If it is an urgency that motivates a feverish search for a new model of the unconscious, it is justifiable, justifiably to account for such a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it reminds me of a. I mean, it's it's a it's a campy film, but it reminds me a little bit of, um, uh, in a simplified or in a more complex form, it reminds me of uh, They Live. You guys said mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just like, uh, you know, if if the. If the if if the investigators uh, of the machine unconscious, if the the sort of the explorers of this uh, largely unexplored domain uh, were able to to put on the magic sunglasses uh, that allowed us to see the outlines of the presupposed images of thought that account for the the bootstrapping that. The universal, the, the the presupposed universality of language imposes, um, then one can more easily diagram it. And by diagramming it, um, and this is why the diagram is important. I mean, just just loosely by diagramming images of thought, one also um, depotentializes them. It, we we uh, Laura Will talks about it in abstract algebraic terms as you know philosophy. Uh, which I, I believe he's using as a as a you know uh, that would include just various images of thought you know philosophy and its presupposition is already the square of itself and so non-philosophy comes in at this vector of an imaginary level of the square root of negative one and allows for um, not the destruction of transcendence itself or philosophy itself but but a depotentializing of it really taking it down a power from it from its self-squared nature to um to a simple uh to a simplified form and uh and so i think it's the same thing for schizoanalysis uh or what Deleuze would call transcendental empiricism via the diagram one is able to reduce that self-squaring vector um and it reminds me of 
uh, an anecdote about a medieval monk who was overwhelmed, rendered paralyzed by these, these, these visions of mandalas. And he was compelled in order to sort of regain agency to, uh, to draw this, these visions. And by drawing it, he depotentialized their arresting um, power over him. And I think that there's something similar. And this is why I believe for Guattari, the diagram is the um, on the level of the abstract and the A signifying and the molecular uh, being able to sort of use the diagram as this as this way of uh, depotentializing images of thought. Mm -hmm. We didn't get to uh, questions. I know we didn't. And uh, should we do questions? Can. I have one good one that I, I think this is an interesting one that uh, Alfonso submitted was, uh, let's see, he was saying, the thing I can't remember if it may be so-and-so so had suggested it, but I had heard that had Anti-Oedipus and Thousand Plateaus been written today, it would have been called Capitalism and Autism. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I read that one, and not to avoid the question, but I need to know more <laughs> about what is meant by those words. I know that's very yeah. Aquatarian, but it's like <laughs> autism psychoanalytically was a subject research for a long time. And then people had certain ideas about it. And then a lot of the scientific community stuff came out and said, you guys are wrong. And then eventually the big autism researcher in psychoanalysis said, you're right, I am wrong. But just because the method doesn't of psychoanalysis doesn't match up with science doesn't mean that you don't get therapeutic results. Um, I think autism gets called schizophrenia and schizophrenia gets called autism sometimes. Yeah. But that could just be mutism. So I think there's a clinically, there's a lot of terminology that is like overlapping, but means different things, especially politically. Um, I think just empirically, we could all have met someone who is schizoaffective or schizotypical or schizo, whatever you want to say. And we could come away from the experience saying, Oh, I think that person is on the spectrum or maybe they, they're, they have autism or something. Yeah. I but agree. Real autism these days are in my experience, uh, children and adults who, who just cannot regulate their emotions and their tensions and they don't have language, good language acquisition and they're just prone to being explosive. Um, and they just need a lot of support doing everyday life, uh, everyday life things. So they often have to live, uh, the real bad cases have to live in like uh, shared homes. Um, and then the higher functioning um, might just have trouble grasping social situations or understanding nuance. Yes. But, Maybe someone in the comments of the Twitter when this gets posted who has experience personally or impersonally with autism can say more on that. But I think schizophrenia is good conceptually because it gets at the ideas of fragmentation and what Freud called using language on the register of things, not words. Yep, yep. Schizophrenics, uh, not to paint with broad brush, but... Um, they have different ways of relating to the world that have more to do with intensities. Um, mm -hmm. They don't mm -hmm. filter out things as much. They think through ideas of reference conjunctively 
they just connect ideas. A lot of what I write in my blog is that I write schizophrenically. Um, I just make associations between fictions to try and create narratives, which is a lot of what D&G are up to. Mm -hmm. uh, that is not present in autism, in my opinion. You don't get that conjunctive, fragmented thought. Um, so I wouldn't, based on those things, I would say no. <laughs> but I think yeah. it would be a very interesting project if someone wanted to do uh, capitalism and autism and show what they mean by that and things like that. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what you said, especially the, the reference to Freud, um, how Freud hated uh, hated working with schizophrenics because yeah. he, he claimed they were like philosophers, right? Um, yeah. And this is this is the proliferation of associations you were mentioning, and uh, and uh, also it, it's um, you you see in the case of Schraber that they yes. begin anti Oedipus with um, he is this very profound case highly schizophrenic mm -hmm. um very articulate but also yeah. was able to manage his estate right so yeah. that's that's not a case of autism as you were referring to in a severe sense but it is a severe case of schizophrenia and the ideational aspect and the aspect of um the um the the intensities of being impregnated by solar rays, right? That's not an autistic phenomenon as we currently qualify it. It's but it's schizoaffective. Yeah. So I think it's precisely that aspect via the notion of schizophrenia as a process, as not and not as a, a, a clinical entity, um, that schizophrenia as a process as is, uh, is 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 where they first craft the notion of the bwo right as this plane of intensities of sort of unformed matters and uh and uh mm -hmm. yeah and so on so uh so yeah i mean i, I think that that's that's a, that's a that's a definitely an interesting question, and we can obviously leave it open. But I I, I tend to agree with you, DC, about um, that that it's it, one would have to one would have to see that that fleshed out before being able to agree or disagree. Yeah, I think it'd be an interesting project for that person to do. Show us what you mean by that, and. Whether it's right or wrong, who cares? Be interesting. That's mm -hmm. usually my, mm -hmm. my thing. Just create that. Mm -hmm. I, now that I'm thinking about it, I do, have a, I do see an adolescent patient who's diagnosed with autism. So being diagnosed with autism by the state and, quote, having autism are two things, two separate things, because people, you know, can get diagnosed with whatever. I see people with 10 diagnoses at my day job and it's because they've been traded through the system and been labeled with all these things. And you'll see people yeah. with conflicting diagnoses, yes. chronic depression and uh, like schizophrenia. Like, no, what you're seeing is uh, they're schizophrenic, so they can't uh, participate in everyday life and take care of themselves. That's not depression. You're mistaking, you know, blah, blah, blah. We don't need to go into that. No, I, I, I totally agree. So this kid 
if you don't give him very clear, straightforward information, he gets very anxious and worked up and will start hitting himself or trying to hit me. But a schizophrenic will not do that for the most part. Schizophrenics will take whatever information they have and run with it and create this beautiful paranoid web. So I think even down to the way knowledge and information is handled is, is very different with autism and schizophrenia. But again, this guy looks like he's a Lacanian, the guy who uh, Alfonso yeah. tagged. So maybe yeah. he's got a different approach. So all grist for the mill. <laughs> yes. Do you want to take any, any more questions? I think there were like two others that I thought might be worth. Uh, I, I know he also asked about, take... sorry. Uh, I know he also asked about like the relationship <laughs> between Deleuze and Guattari and yeah, Laura that's, a, well. that's one I was uh, going to reference. That's a Taylor question. Might be able to yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll try to be really quick, but uh, I know that he said it's an ATP, but it's actually it's, it's actually WIP. It's it's what is philosophy where, ah. and it's not one footnote. It's actually two footnotes to <laughs> about Laura well, one of which is confusing Laura Wells. Well, I, I assume Deleuze wrote what is philosophy. I'm just I just run with that assumption. Um, <laughs> Uh, one of the footnotes is about Laura Wells one, which is the non philosophical one being uh, close to Spinoza and Laura Well himself uh, writes a response sadly after uh, Deleuze died uh, or the same year. So maybe right before or right after uh, he writes a response to Deleuze and, and answers both footnotes. The second footnote is, is about why, um, why, why non-philosophy wouldn't be non-science. And I won't go into the weeds on that, but I will say I don't, uh, I don't know if they actually met. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, but they didn't work in the same universities. And, uh, you know, by the time Laura was doing, uh, really actually articulating non-philosophy in 86, uh, I believe Deleuze may have been at the end of his teaching career or may, may have even retired by then um all that's to say uh, that um and laura wrote a, a very funny little essay or essays really like a, like a series of poems called uh uh it's, it's like notes on a or fragments of an anti-guatery um so he's he's very mocking of their of their language together and um but he's obviously extremely inspired by Deleuze. Uh, Deleuze and Derrida is, is without that conjunction, he, uh, he, he wouldn't be able to flesh out the way he does uh, the notion of non-philosophy or non-standard philosophy. And, um, and I do see, and, and the other really interesting thing that I'll leave off on is that um, Laura Well introduced uh, Bernard Stiegler to the work of Simon Don, and in fact, in France, in uh, I believe it was, I believe it was '64, like five or six years after he writes his dissertation, that a, that a fragment of it gets published. Um, basically, it gets spliced in half, and the the first part of the book on the physical and the biological gets published. And Deleuze writes a very interesting review of this book uh, that was translated by Alberto Descano. Um, I think we can find that online easily. It's about three or four pages. But, um, you know, he, Deleuze references Simondon in, um, 
and a lot of his work, uh, specifically in Logic of Sense, and um, Eddie shows up uh, very prominently in A Thousand Plateaus. But uh, the interesting about Laura Well is that 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 the last part of the book, uh, which is on the psychic and the collective, uh, was never published until '89. So some 25 years later, it wasn't published um, until Laura Well, as an editor at OBA, had it uh, published as a standalone um, volume in, in 1989. And so Laura uh, deserve some credit for um, for believing that Simondon's work uh, deserved to be more widely read. There had been kind of an injustice done. And, you know, I'll, I guess the happy point to all of this is that finally, after 60-some years, um, both volumes uh, will be appearing in English here in a few months. Um, and I put a lot of work into into that, so I'm really excited to to, to get that out for the English speaking mm -hmm. world. Um, and I, I definitely highly recommend it to both of you guys. So maybe eventually we can get to uh, to reading that together That'd as cool. well. That'd be cool. Oh yeah. Um, if you would indulge me, one last question because I'm kind of interested in this too. Any thoughts on contemporary schizoanalysis and how it aligns slash deviates from Watari and Deleuze's conception of it? I honestly don't know much what's going on there. I know there was a journal of schizoanalysis that I looked into to submit some things to, and I ended up saving those for my own projects. Um, I know at least in the psychoanalytic uh, milieu, schizoanalysis isn't even really a thing. Yeah, I was um, about to say, it's probably not a... Yeah, it's not really a thing, which I think, you know, who, who, who cares? <laughs> I, I, I would say that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. it operates from the underground. And I think the interesting thing is a lot of what psychoanalysis has done to grow itself over the past several decades, it's responded to the criticisms of Deleuze and Guattari without knowing it. Um, and I think Deleuze and Guattari get cited sometimes as philosophers and people, my, my whole spiel with Batari is I'm writing a book on him that I would actually like to publish somewhere, not just self-publish, uh, that is just about Guattari as a psychoanalyst. Um, and when I write my papers and submit them to the psychoanalytic journals under my real name, not my Twitter pseudonym, I cite Guattari as himself without Deleuze as a psychoanalyst. I don't beat around And I think bush. that that's the right thing to do. That's the I right agree. thing to do. Yeah, we got to bring back the fact that he was an analyst. He saw patients up until he died in 92, I think it was. Um, and as he mentions, and as mentioned in a lot of the literature, he wouldn't always do, quote, schizoanalysis. He would do uh, straightforward Freudian analysis. And when he came to a point with the patient, he would ask, do you want to do something different? Do you want to do something that's more my style? So he would have them lay on the couch um, and he would analyze dreams and look into the different classical Freudian stuff. But then he would also do other stuff. And in schizoanalytic cartographies, he has this whole beautiful section on analyzing his own dream, uh, which flirts with Freudianism, but also breaks away and is very schizoanalytic. So I think schizoanalysis is alive in psychoanalysis like a virus, and psychoanalysis doesn't know it's carrying it around, which I think is 
incredibly Guattarian. Uh, yep. And yep. I think that's, that's nice. And I, I will, I will add to that, that, uh, you know, if, as you say, uh, schizoanalysis isn't really a thing in the analytic world. I mean, I think that what the machine unconscious shows and what we'll get to get to in uh, some of the next episodes is we can't forget that the very, very difficult uh, theoretical side of machine and conscious, it's not divorced from the second part, which is this amazing, beautiful uh, exemplification of, uh, of, of Proust's work. And he, mm-hmm. he claims himself that, uh, you know, there's no sort of division between science and art in Proust's works, that they are they he's Proust is is an inventor along the lines of Joyce and these other authors that he cites and they're they're basically uh they're simultaneously like inventors um and he says it's a schizoanalytic cartography itself that that Proust's work already is this exemplification of schizoanalysis Mm -hmm. the point is to be able to prepare this thought experiment with the tools required um in the first part and, and exemplify them specifically with uh, the notions of faciality and refrain to um, sort of events, the uh, all the schizoanalytic underpinnings that, that animate this, this beautiful universe uh, that, that Proust has, has prepared. And so in that sense, if schizoanalysis uh, in analysis, as you said, is this, it's already got this like viral existence and it's 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 sort of permeating it without psychoanalysis being aware of it on the flip side as you said uh, in this like underground realm we can i think that uh you know i you know i was training to be a literary uh well comparative literature so to 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 do quote-unquote literary theory or literary criticism whatever Mm -hmm. you call it and 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 that is uh, comparative literature to me is like this beautiful grab bag of, of sort of using uh, all sorts of different disciplines, you know, uh, in, in a uh, uh, sort of slamming it together like like particles in a collider and, mm-hmm. and, and being able to uh, detect sort of um, the, the, the fragments that, that follow from it and sort of to compose that also in uh, systematically, right? So I think that one thing that's really untapped in uh, literary theory, literary criticism, uh, comparative literature is Guattari's contribution to um, to literary scholarship in this mm-hmm. second part of the Machinic Unconscious, and it rivals Deleuze's book on Proust. And in fact, I find it to be much more profound. Um, but having said that, Guattari um, himself says that he's inspired by by what Deleuze did uh, on Proust, and that. He would have to cite Deleuze on every page. I think mm-hmm. he's also being very charitable, but they're they're doing they're doing different things. Um, and and Guattari is no, uh, he's saying that he's kind of standing on Deleuze's shoulders. Uh, I think he maybe doesn't give himself enough credit, but I, I just also think that's the kind of uh, personality he has. Um, but I think that that's one thing that's really untapped in um, not only in Deleuze and Guattari scholarship, but in 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 uh, the humanities in general is it's what's untapped is this reading of Proust and how um, and I would be curious to know and I don't know but if if Proust scholars 
uh, if there's any, done, done any work uh, um, in Proust scholarship on, on Guattari's reading. I, I can see it, probably not. I just think Guattari was always this vagabond uh, wanderer nomad mm -hmm. and never had a, had a home in the in the in disciplines including uh analysis as you pointed out so uh, he's really um you know if Deleuze has been incorporated in the humanities to become this meme and this almost self-parody Guattari yeah. is, is, is is still kind of remain um this bastard child mm -hmm. in yeah. academia he has the, the only time Zizek ever mentions him is to say he should be brought out back and shot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can see Zizek saying that, um, but he also wrote, I mean, one of his worst books is... Organs is, Without Bodies. Yeah, it's... it's Fucking it's utter, joke. <laughs> it is. Uh, I, think the only, I think the only real joke is that uh, it claims to be a book about Deleuze and then, it's, and then it uh, very quickly turns into a book about Hegel. And I think that that maybe is, <laughs> is the only, it's the only funny part of the joke. Uh, otherwise, you know, as, as a book to be read, it's, 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 uh, it's just, I don't think it's worth anyone's time, but, uh, you know, yeah. that's, um, I do I, like Zizek. I mean, he's written a lot like of stuff that's, that's great, but, but that, that book I think was a mistake. Absolutely. But yeah, no, I agree with the bulk of what you said there, especially about, Proust or Prost, however you pronounce it. Proust. Proust. Man, Proust. There you go. Proust. Proust. If it's, yeah, I mean, well, it's, two things I'm terrible with, it's uh, grammar and pronunciations. Oh, that's okay. I mean, uh, you know, it's no one's going to judge you here. Uh, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I, I will say that uh, syntagmatization and paradigmatization are, are not easy to say, right? <laughs> yeah, Oops. right, yeah. <laughs> Syntagmatization, I can't, I'll have True. to practice that. Well, well it's weird because you say syntam and paradigm, and then I guess in the in that substantive, you're almost forced to say the, to pronounce the G, and it really kind of fucks with us. Yeah. Paradigmatic. Yeah. Now that I can say paradigmatic, that's... That's easy. Uh, paradigmatic. <laughs> like yeah you're right yeah it's that g that becomes a stumbling block but i think that'll that'll wrap us up for the mm -hmm. day i do want to just real quick before i let you both uh you know pitch or not pitch but um you know plug your stuff i want to read a couple of quick quotes as a sort of a coda to the episode uh the Go first being, i think from our, both of these are i think early on in the first chapter the first one being, we have the unconscious we deserve, which is a great aphorism. And then secondly, why stick this label of machinic unconscious onto it? Simply to stress that it is populated not only with the images and words, but also with all kinds of mechanism, mechanisms that lead it to produce and reproduce those images and words. But uh, whomever wants to go first and, you know, share your podcast or, or blog more about it. Go ahead before we wrap up for the day. Plug Taylor. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so Coop, I appreciate you having me on. Um, I'm, I'm Taylor Adkins. Uh, I guess you can follow me on Twitter at T Adkins 613. Um, and I co-host theory talk. Uh, it's a, it's a fun little philosophy slash theory podcast um, where me and my friend 
Joe Wiseman, we just we just kind of riff on uh, on ideas and um, cover a lot of the the authors that I've translated, like Watari, Larwell, Simon Down. Um, but obviously, a lot of Deleuze, a lot of Nietzsche. Um, we definitely spend way too much time talking about fucking Socrates. So, you know, I mean, like, <laughs> so a lot of the history philosophy stuff, but also diving into like science fiction and uh, um, uh, cybernetics and information theory, uh, a lot of computer programming discussions. So it's, it's just kind of a, a nice little, uh, little grab bag. And all of that started with our blog, which is still out there, but pretty much uh, just kind of an archive now of um, fractal ontology. That's how Joe and I kind of started was publishing, uh, self-publishing certain essays. And uh, I, I started, uh, you know, free use publishing translations of intros and prefaces and essays just to, just to kind of get some practice and to share. And that's, that, that kind of bloomed into me becoming a quote unquote real translator. Um, mm -hmm. So blogs are, uh, blogs have been a, a vector for self-expression and, and sharing. Yeah, you got a little piece in urbanomic, right? Uh, I, uh, uh, do I? What, wait, which yeah, one? You, you got something published in urbanomic, didn't you? Um, well, I, I know that uh, I translated well, three or four essays for one of the Laurel um, publications of Urbanomic, and I have a uh, I have a little translation of Chatelet writing on Deleuze. It's a fun yeah. little essay. That's um, what came up when I searched your name. Yeah, right. That's coming out soon. Uh, Philosophies of the Virtual. I think it's what's called, maybe? Enchantments um, of the Virtual. Enchantment, yeah, sorry. And then From Decision to Heresy. Come on, I know your book's better than you. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, well that one's not out yet. No, no, you're good. Yeah, yeah. The, the Chatelet isn't out yet, I don't think. Um, but it's it's got a really it's got a really good collection of essays. And uh, the one on Deleuze is great. He, uh, he One of his quotes, he's talking about, like, Deleuze, uh, you know, he's wanted everything from the middle, thinking from the middle. And, and the, uh, you know, the objectors are like, where's your fucking middle? And uh, it's, it's, it's funny. It's, it's, a, it's a nice cheek, cheeky little essay. I like it. Good. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm, I go by DC Barker on Twitter. I think the tag is 4Q248. And I'm a blogger at uh, pseudoanalysis dot blogspot but i spelled pseudo wrong um but you can <laughs> if you find my twitter you can see my blog in the thing and i blog about all kinds of stuff and i'm a psychoanalyst to be um yeah and i got a bunch of ebooks coming out on my patreon and then i'm working on some ebooks i might publish through some other people who are online people and then I have a book on Guattari that I would like to publish eventually somewhere that's not the internet. Um, <laughs> Hell yeah. That's my plug. Nice. I'll definitely provide links in the show notes for everybody um, before we do officially sign off. I want to uh, bring up that if you're enjoying the show, uh, definitely throw me a dollar or two on Patreon. You can find me at 
www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H on Twitter at Unconscious H-H and on Instagram at Unconscious H-H. But this will be Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry signing off for the week. Thanks. That's great, man. The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity. Including the ultimate form of singularity, which is